Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we have Alice Zhang, co-founder and CEO of Verge Genomics. Verge uses artificial intelligence and human genomics to transform drug discovery for multiple diseases. Zhang has driven systems biology research at the National Cancer Institute, Princeton University, and UCLA. Here's Alice. I'm very excited to be here today, partly because I actually started Verge Genomics when I was a student. So I was originally a grad student at UCLA when I first started becoming interested in the drug discovery process. And it was in that moment I realized how broken drug discovery is right now. It's still largely a guessing game, but we're in this really unique moment of time right now where advances in genomics and machine learning are really poising us to rethink the way we do drug discovery and take a lot of the guesswork out of drug discovery. And so I started Verge really with a vision of creating a scalable drug discovery engine that could be repeated not just for one disease, but across many different diseases, and eventually apply to even larger human conditions such as aging, disease prevention, and addiction. So I want to start out with kind of why I went into the field in the first place, which is for the patients. And at Verge, our first disease area that we focused in is in ALS. So ALS is a rapidly degenerating disorder in which patients progressively become paralyzed, losing their ability to walk, to eat, and eventually to breathe. And unfortunately, because most of these patients die within three years, and under our current drug discovery system, it takes over 15 years just to find a single new drug, most of these patients won't get the drugs that they need. At Verge, we've been able to use artificial intelligence to identify over a dozen promising drug candidates that are showing effect in our preclinical models. They're showing effect in mice that we've engineered with ALS in them. So I'm about to show you a video of three mice that have ALS. And they're at the kind of initial early stages of ALS where they're starting to lose their ability to walk and their muscles are starting to waste. And so you can see that these muscles, these uh, mice are already losing their ability to walk and have a hard time staying on this rotating wheel. But when we give these very same ALS mice injections of a drug discovered entirely by our platform, they recover their ability to walk and stay on this rotating wheel. And what's so exciting about this drug is that it's actually just one of many drugs that we've identified showing promising effects in the lab, but also one of many diseases that we're currently pursuing. And that's really what is so exciting to me about this platform is the potential to find drugs not just for one disease, but to eventually scale across many different diseases. And at Verge, we're building an engine really with the vision of creating and helping enable a world in which cures exist for every single human disease out there without an available treatment. But first, I want to start by taking you through kind of my personal story and where it all began. Because if you had asked me five years ago or told me five years ago that you would be a CEO of a biotech company, I probably would have laughed. <laughs> I'd be like, never in a million years. Um, so I was born in the DC area. Um, and here are my parents. They're immigrants from China. 
This is a picture of me from what my friends called the Bruce Lee era, because apparently I look like Bruce Lee with an awesome haircut and monochromatic jumpsuit. Um, but really, it was a, a unique moment, like shortly thereafter, um, around middle school, when I started realizing what death was, kind of dark and morbid, but um, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, you know, what do I want to be thinking in the very last moment on my deathbed? What is the last thought I want to have? And I realized that what I wanted to be thinking was that I have made the maximum amount of impact on the world that I know I could have. And in fact, because I was kind of neurotic, I also had this like formula in my head where I was like, I will maximize for like the greatest delta per patient across the greatest number of patients in the shortest period of time. So that led me to science because you know, I thought at the time, what better way to really impact people than to really change the way they interact with their bodies and the way they live their lives. So I actually went to the National Institutes of Health and had my first science experience in high school, which to be honest, I absolutely hated. I was at the bench, I was pipetting, I was like doing these molecular biology experiments. Uh, and it was a very classical kind of old school form of molecular biology, which teaches us that one gene in your DNA always corresponds to one protein. And there are scientists that dedicate their entire lives to actually just studying one gene to, in hopes of finding a link to disease. But this all changed one day, when one day during lab meeting, this uh, mem lab member got up and uh, gave a lab meeting. And his name is Dr. Wakti, Stefan Wakti, and he was this Austrian biophysicist. I was kind of like, what is a physicist doing in a cancer biology lab? But then he showed in his meeting these beautiful network diagrams of hundreds of different genes. And so it turns out that the story is much more complex. It turns out there are over 22,500 genes in our genome, each of which uh, together encode for over 100,000 proteins. And he asked, what if instead of studying one gene at a time, we actually looked at how all of these genes interact to cause disease? And it was just something that was so obvious to me. I couldn't stop thinking about it the next night. I was like, you know, like, what can I do to get involved? This makes so much sense that we look at hundreds of genes at a time to study disease. So the next day, I went up to his door and I knocked on his door and I asked, hey, is there, how can I get involved in more projects? And in a very kind of rough European way, he was like, well, why don't you just go and code up, like find all 100,000 proteins in the human proteome, put together a map and come back to me when you're done. And oh, by the way, you'll need to know Python. And being a high school student, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we'll do. And I left his office, I beelined straight for my desk and I immediately Googled what is Python. And that is legitimately how I learned how to code, which was really just driven by this burning desire to really understand how these biological networks worked. And unbeknownst to me, this was actually part of a larger historical narrative that was happening at the time. You see, in the 1950s, we had the molecular biology revolution, which really gave us the tools to study one gene at a time. And this enabled companies such as Genentech, Biogen, and Amgen to start. But in the 2000s, we had the genomics revolution, 
the human genome was sequenced, which gave us the tools to study tens of thousands of genes at once. And this meant drug discovery was no longer a biology problem, but it became a data science problem. It became a physics problem. It became a problem of multiple disciplines. And I believe that the next generation of biotech companies will rely on integrating all of these disciplines together to be successful. And so this is my kind of second turning point. So I'm kind of going to walk through a series of turning points um, that I felt like set me up for uh, starting the company, even though I didn't know at that time. And this is a really critical one. So fast forward a few years later, I'm in college, um, and I'm studying in the lab of Saeed Tavazoe, who is one of the pioneers in genomics and cancer biology. And so at the time, it was the end of my senior year in college, and I was thinking, you know, I think the MD-PhD might really be the best way to tackle that life mission of mine, which was to make as much impact as possible. But I was 20 at the time. The MD-PhD program is like eight years at minimum, up to 12 to 15 years. And I just like was having this existential crisis. I could not fathom what eight years meant, uh, nor could I commit to anything. I was like, do I really want to be a physician scientist? How do I even know? Like, do I really want to be a doctor? And he kind of sat me down he, and he told me, like, look, Alice, there's no way that you know that you will want to become a doctor unless you just start medical school. And you won't know if you want to be a professor unless you just start graduate school. You know, and you don't like it, you know, you can always just leave or pivot. You're not committed to it for the rest of your life. But at least then you will not have left any rock unturned and you'll just have gotten started. And so that was a really, a really big light bulb moment for me. And I think to this day, I see so many people get stuck on these paths that they think they've committed to and really have their lives ruled by this kind of sunk cost fallacy. And in reality, you'll never know. You'll never know whether or not a path is right for you unless you just take the first step, unless you just get started. Um, and that was just really big for me throughout the rest of my career. <laughs> Ironically, it was also a big theme for me when I decided to leave the MD-PhD. Uh, so this is in 2010 uh, when I began my MD-PhD uh, with 11 other colleagues. Interestingly, actually four of these people did not end up finishing the program. Um, and I actually met my co-founder, who's that guy uh, right behind me, on this very day this picture was taken. And so when I started medical school, in a lot of ways, it was profoundly fulfilling. You know, I got to see these patients every day. It felt like I was making an impact on individual patients and their families. But I couldn't keep this kind of gnawing feeling I was having that, you know, that was it. You know, I could see patients and it would be impactful for them, but there was a limit to how many patients I could see in my lifetime. And so I transitioned to the PhD, and that's when I started focusing on drug discovery for my thesis and specifically on the very earliest stages of drug discovery. So right now, in even the first phase of drug discovery, it takes about five years and of over a quarter billion dollars to even just screen through drugs and find drugs that work. And this is because a lot of pharma companies are paying for failures. So oftentimes their brute force screening tens to hundreds of thousands of compounds just to identify one that works in the lab. And I thought there must be a better way to do this. And so back in grad school, I started coding up some of the first algorithms 
to find new drugs for nerve regeneration. So spinal cord injury, nerve injury. And quite shockingly, the very first drug that was predicted by the algorithm, when we put it into mice with crushed nerves, helped them recover function of their nerves much faster than even the leading standard. And this was just the first drug we tested. And so when compared to kind of the current pharma success rate, I thought, wow, this is really a compelling finding. But when I was writing it up for publication, I was writing up the manuscript, I kind of thought, like, do I want to just publish this and let it sit on a bookshelf somewhere? Or what is the best path to actually get, getting this product to patients? And I realized that really, if I wasn't going to be the one to push it out, there'd be very few other people that would be as qualified to really advance this to commercialization. And I think the second thing that was happening for me at the time was I went into this PhD with really big hopes that I could make a discovery that would impact millions. But what I realized was the kind of realities of day-to-day -day academia were very much still focused on publications first uh, and not so much on direct patient translation. So in many ways, it's ironic because the actual reason I went into the MD PhD ended up also being also the reason I left, which was I found that starting a startup was the most direct fulfillment of creating patient impact as quickly as possible. This is also another reason I ended up leaving my program, which was uh, we got into Y Combinator. And so I actually learned about Y Combinator um, through two Google searches. Uh, the first was, what is an incubator? And then the second one was, what is the best incubator in the world? And it, this was the first thing, so I clicked on it. And I realized that the applications were due in about a week. So my co-founder and I went and we like spent a week writing up this application. And the day before it was due, I gave it to a friend that had started a startup. And he just tells me, Alice, you're going to need to forget everything they taught you in grad school and write this like you would write it for your mom so your mom could understand. And that was another light bulb moment for me, which was like, they've taught me the specific way to write in the specific jargon in grad school that I had to unlearn. But that was also a huge lesson for me in just entrepreneurship, which is the first step is actually learning how to communicate your idea in a way that's as simple as possible and figure out what people you're talking to care about and communicate it to why they should actually care about your idea. Um, so I actually ended up scrapping in, pulling an all-nighter, <laughs> rewriting it, actually thinking that my mom was going to read it, um, and we got in. And so I kind of want to end with, and at least this section, but a lot of people ask me, and they say, oh, you must have been so brave to leave the grad school program or to make the leap. But the honest answer is it never felt like a leap. It always felt like a next step. And it felt like the next step towards answering just a long list of questions. And I felt, feel like that's a lot of what uh, entrepreneurship is. So the first question for us was, will anyone even care about this idea? <laughs> and luckily, we found that YC did care. And then the next question was, can we actually get funding to grow our idea? And the question after that was, can we build an initial team to actually build the product? And can we actually grow a team to take the product to the next level? So really, this was just a kind of a cascading journey of individual steps. 
Um, but it really taught me that the most important thing is to just stay adaptable. And I think that people get so caught up in trying to figure out, like, where do I want to end up? What is the best path there? Um, is this really where I want to be? When in reality, you can never really know. And the best thing you can do is just to take the next step to find out more information, if that is uh, true or not. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that I face specifically when building an AI and drug discovery company. Um, and so when I first started, I realized that one of the biggest barriers right now from preventing AI from fully realizing its potential in drug discovery are these huge silos that exist between different industries. There are silos that exist between computational teams, biology, chemistry, drug development, and even academia and industry. And the first thing I wanted to do was to create a team that broke down some of these silos. So we really set out from day one to create this truly integrated team that combines top experts in machine learning and statistics with drug developers, neurobiologists, and chemists. And it's been so important to have these people sitting side by side with each other because the computational people really understand what they're making. They really understand what their product needs to look like. And the biologists can design experiments that produce the right types of data for the computational team. I think another challenge that we faced when we first started was a lot of companies have trouble figuring out how they actually create value from their algorithms. And so we decided from day one that we didn't want to just be a software company, but we actually wanted to own the products or the potential billion dollar drugs that would come out of our platform. So what we did from day one was create a vertically integrated company. What that means is that we have both the front end of our machine learning uh, algorithms, as well as the, our own in-house drug discovery and animal facilities and labs. So this allows us to actually create our own sets of proprietary data by sourcing thousands of different patient brains and sequencing it ourselves and mining this data to figure out what are the groups of genes or gene networks that are causing disease. By looking at these gene networks, we've been able to build a robust first-in-class drug portfolio of over a dozen breakthrough opportunities in six different diseases. And importantly, because we have our own integrated labs, we can quickly turn these predictions into real drugs, as well as see if our predictions actually work and feed that data back in to continuously improve the algorithms. So the second challenge I see facing the field is really a problem of data availability. So machine learning in PEC is fundamentally different from machine learning in biology because most of human biology is still unknown. That's to say, there's a huge missing data problem. And we encountered this problem when we actually were looking at the data sets available. And we saw that these data sets were vastly underpowered and poorly designed and could not be used for machine learning. And what's important here is that the sophistication of your algorithms is irrelevant if you don't have enough data from which to train and to learn. 
So we've embarked on this two-year internal data generation initiative where we now generate all of our own proprietary patient data sets. And we do this by partnering with over a dozen different hospitals, brain banks, and universities to actually source thousands of patient brains after they've died, and we sequence that internally to create now one of the largest patient training data sets in the world for ALS and Parkinson's disease. But while training data is really important for generating predictions, for every AI company, you need to have validation data. So we take all of these predictions and we actually test them in our biology labs to create a huge body of validation data that feeds back into the algorithms and constantly improves them over time and across diseases as well. And this is critical for any company in AI and biology because AI cannot be a black box in biology. You need to have a way to actually see if the predictions work and to let those predictions guide the improvement of the actual algorithms themselves. And so the last challenge we have, sounds pretty simple, does it even work? So there's this concept in startups that there are two types of risk. There's technical risk, can you build a product? And market risk, do people want your product? And so for biotech companies, the market risk is pretty obvious. Um, if you created an Alzheimer's disease tomorrow that actually worked, you'd immediately have hundreds of millions of people clamoring to get that drug and willing to pay anything. So the biggest challenge really is technical risk, and that's huge. Does what you're predicting actually work, and will it work in a patient? And that's the biggest challenge, and that's another reason why we built out this vertical integration, because if you don't have labs, you can't test if your predictions are working. But you can't just go into a human from day one to test it. Um, and a big challenge um, in drug discovery that's led to a lot of failures are that people only test in mice before they go into humans. Um, and mice, drugs in mice historically haven't translated well in neuroscience. So what we've done instead at Verge is we've leveraged a new technology using human stem cells and what we can do is we can actually take skin cells from patients with disease, such as Alzheimer's disease, and we can actually turn those into brain cells in a dish. And then we combine that with robotic systems internally to be able to test all of our AI predictions at scale in cheap and automated human trials before we even go to clinic. So here's one of the systems that we use to test our predictions. We plate the patient brain cells on this dish, and we treat them with the drugs predicted by our platform. This robotic arm then comes along every day, takes the plate out from the incubator, and places it underneath the microscope at the same exact location. This microscope then moves along and images each well up to multiple times a day, enabling us to recreate the live growth and degeneration of individual living brain cells in real patients with ALS, Parkinson's disease, and Alzheimer's disease. So this is a live, uh, this is a time-lapse image from a real uh, brain cells from a real patient with ALS. And you can see here that over time, the, these white lines disintegrate into these tiny white dots. And that's the process of the cell dying. This is also the same process that causes ALS in patients. 
Now we can actually take these images and we can algorithmically analyze them and create these types of survival curves. So on the x-axis, you have time over the course of days. On the y-axis, you have percent of the cells that are still living. And you can see on the red line that ALS patient brain cells tend to die off much more quickly than on the black line, which are healthy patient brain cells. Now, what's been so exciting for us over the last year is that when we took the first drug from our platform and we put it into these very same ALS patient brain cells, we could actually completely rescue them from dying. In fact, restoring them to the very same levels as healthy patients. This is the first time that any AI-predicted drug has worked not only in mice, but also in human brain cells as well. So I kind of just want to end with, you know, where do I think biotech is going over the, the next five to 10 years? And really starting with an area that's near and dear to my heart, neurodegeneration. So I talked about some of the challenges with drug discovery. And in no other disease is it as severe as in neurodegeneration. So Alzheimer's disease currently is, is the only disease that has actual growing death rates. And it's the only disease of top diseases in which there's no drug that can slow, prevent, or cure these diseases. And as we all get older, we'll be increasingly affected by these diseases. So why can't we figure it out? It's because these diseases are incredibly complex and the traditional drug discovery method isn't sufficient to tackle them. In fact, in the last uh, year, there have been $7 billion Alzheimer's failures from Big Pharma. And in fact, last year, Pfizer announced that it was shuttering its entire neuroscience division, laying off over 300 employees. But what is less written about is the scientific and technological renaissance that's actually happening in neuroscience right now. And I think it's super interesting because anytime you have a big incumbent that is turning away from a huge untapped market, combined with a convergence of technological advances, you create this sort of money ball opportunity for smaller companies to really come along and transform the entire landscape. Now I'll talk about a couple of these advances. The first, of course, is genomics. So in 2000, some of you might have seen this figure, in the 2000s, it cost over $100 million to sequence a single genome. Today, it costs less than $1,000. And in fact, this has dropped so quickly that it's even surpassed what's predicted by Moore's law of computing costs. And so just like the decline in computing costs has fundamentally changed the way we interact with the physical world, I think that this increase in genomic data will change the way we think about disease. Now I'm gonna talk about three additional technologies that we use at Verge to get a leg up on drug discovery. The first is that we are one of the first to actually be able to collect brain samples and sequence them from live patients with Parkinson's disease. So this is deep brain stimulation. It's an advance in surgery that allows us to implant a device into a patient's brain and turn it on to prevent Parkinson's patients from having tremors. But there's also a second unexpected uh, advantage here, 
which is that we can actually access patient tissue from a patient while he or she is still living and sequence it to be the first to get an unprecedented glimpse into earlier disease progression. We've also started single cell sequencing, which is a technology I think will revolutionize genomics in the next five years. So instead of sequencing patient brains at the tissue level, we can actually take individual cells and sequence their nuclei. And that, for the first time, gives us a glimpse into cell type complexity at a resolution we haven't been able to achieve before. And lastly, uh, using the same technology I showed you earlier in our lab, we're now also able to take patient skin cells and actually uh, turn them into 3D brain organoids in the lab, which allow us to model the brain in a, area, a degree of complexity we haven't seen before. So a lot of these technologies like these will also change the type of companies that are coming out. And I think uh, these advances have already led to a proliferation of biotech companies with non-traditional profiles. So these are companies that have been started by technologists and biologists coming together and are led by savvy teams that grew up in the genomics and the AI era. And these are teams that recognize the importance of creating multidisciplinary teams that interface between computer science, physics, and computational biology. And I think there'll be an explosion of these types of companies in the next five years. So I want to end with, you know, while, we're, while I consider us in this kind of new era of biotech companies, uh, life sciences is still a very traditional field. Um, for example, it's very rare for there to be a founder who is also a CEO today in biotech. And most are really started by a small group of venture capital firms that bring in professional management. So in the very beginning, it was quite challenging for a company like ours to really break through. And I learned a couple really important lessons in how you can actually create an advantage from scratch. And the first thing I learned was do things that are laborious, especially in the beginning. Because as a founder, you will need to be the one doing things yourself to really kickstart the company. As an example, when I first started the company, uh, to hire the team, I, we, our initial team, I personally interviewed about 1,200 people myself. And I did that by actually going on Upwork.com, finding some outsourced uh, 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 people on, uh, on Upwork, and actually then going through a decade's worth of publications from Nature, Cell, Science, whatever had the word genomics in it. I found the first three authors, found their emails, and I would email out hundreds of people per week. I like to think every computational biologist has an email from me in their inbox. Um, but that was really, really, really critical for me because not only did I understand and learn the field, understand how to hire, but I was able to recruit a rock star team exactly in the mold of what I envisioned for the team. And it was after building that really stellar team that made recruiting actually so much easier after that. The next lesson is one I take, consider really important for myself personally, which is that I think it's one of my greatest responsibilities as a CEO to grow faster personally than your company does. So what do I mean that, by that? 
And the first thing is that you have to get really comfortable with taking a hard look at yourself and understanding what it is you're bad at, what you don't know, and what you need to learn. And you need to get really okay with that. And then you need to be absolutely shameless about learning it, finding advisors, filling the gaps. And so I always like to say Verge was built on a foundation of cold emails. Um, whenever I found I didn't know anything, whether it was not business development or drug development, I would literally go and put together a list of emails of who I think is the best of the best. And I would just cold email them. Actually, very surprised by how many people responded. But that's kind of how I started building my foundation of expertise. Um, and I think the last thing is that you have to stay hungry to find stepwise functions for personal growth. So rather than trying things through trial and error, how can I find things that will really boost my own growth? And so things that have worked for me, for example, are executive coaching, reading a ton of books, and finding other founders that have gone through it. And so that brings me to my last point, which is that you know, being a founder is a very singular, it's a very challenging, and oftentimes it's a really lonely experience. And so I would not be where I was now if I did not myself find a group of other founders that would eventually become my best friends with the shared experiences. So these are people that I would literally text at midnight and be like, crap, I have to fire someone for the first time. How do I fire someone? And then I would text someone like, I just fired someone. Does anyone want to grab a drink? <laughs> so these are people that really have Seen, we've seen each other's companies really from beginning all the way through. Our friend's company was just acquired last week. Uh, so that's a picture taken last week. And I think this is so important because as a founder, it's really, really hard to know where to get good advice. You're going to be told what to do by your investors, by your advisors, by your employees, none of which are sure has the company's best interest at heart. And so I think the best advice I've always gotten have been from other founders that have gone through the same thing, especially founders that are about a year or two ahead of me. Uh, and that's really the best way to kind of anticipate what you don't know. And lastly, I feel like building a important, building a personal uh, support network for yourself is really key to actually building a sustainable business across time because you will need places to look for advice throughout the whole entire journey. So I'll start taking questions now. Your model that drug companies are facing with the way they take all drugs. Um, how how much of that is taken up by needing to get approvals and going through those drug trials? It takes up some approvals, and is that something you guys are having such challenges facing? I'm a little curious on your thoughts on Yeah. So a lot of that. Oh, so the question was um, of the 15 years. How much of that is taken up by uh, the approval process, and does our does our technology address that component? Uh, so, of the the fifteen year and the two billion dollar figure, the average it takes to get a drug developed, um, a vast majority of that time and cost is actually working through the failures, right? So, if you found if you just happen to have like the magical drug from day one, 
the process would not be that long. But the challenge is actually, okay, I have to test like a million drugs before I even find some viable candidates. Then of these viable candidates, 10% of them are actually safe. And then of those, 10% actually work in humans. And so it's the kind of repetition of needing to start over and over again and a lot of failures that contributes to a lot of that time and cost. Um. First of all, thank you so much for this I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about how your prediction technology works and how you identify what <laughs> Yeah, so as I was talking about uh, sorry. The, uh, so she asked, uh, how does, could you tell us a bit more about how the prediction technology works? How do you identify drugs uh, for treatments? So the, the technology works kind of based on two premises. The first is that diseases are not caused by one gene, they're caused by hundreds of genes. The second is that we need to look at human data from day one, rather than just making guesses about what we think causes disease. So the prediction works by actually taking real brains from patients that have died from some of these diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and looking across their entire genome to see what's changing. So for example, we might see a group of 100 genes that are always going up in Alzheimer's patients, but not in healthy uh, aged people of the, of the same age. Um, and what we want to do is then find drugs that turn off those same genes. And that's where the machine learning comes in, is how do we leverage knowledge about what we know about the interactions between genes to find these key hubs that are in the middle of these networks, and how can we target those to turn off all 100 genes at one time? Back there. Um, so, given your focus on being vertically integrated um, and also considering the fact that you, uh, you that Verge currently is a startup, uh, looking more into the future, what are your plans for uh, handling clinical trials? Um, and is your goal to ultimately partner with some of the big pharma companies, or um, how do you plan on scaling that up um, within the company? So the question was, given our focus on vertical integration, what are our plans for executing clinical trials? Will we be partnering with other pharma companies or doing it ourselves? Um, so the, the advantage of having the platform, which is unusual for companies, is that we actually have a wealth of opportunities to go after. So you can think of it as a portfolio and many different drugs even within each disease. And so our goal is to not only expand those diseases, but also to show that we can get them further. So partnering, you know, in biotech, it's almost impossible to do the whole thing by yourself for everything. So what we'll likely end up doing is we will select a couple of programs that we advance ourselves, and then also partner out other programs so that we can have as many shots on goal as possible. I have a question around um, just uh, how you think about uh, pricing of your uh, drugs once they're fully developed, given that you're able to bring them to market faster. And one of the big challenges with many of these treatments, I'm sure, is that they're very expensive. So will your uh, medicine be more uh, affordable and therefore uh, more difficult to afford to pay for them? Sure. So the question was, how do we think about pricing? Um, a lot of drugs right now are, there's a lot of questions around expense and affordability. Do we think we can have an impact on pricing? 
Um, so right now, we're, if you think of drug development chain as a very long 12-year chain, we're at the very beginning. Um, and we'll likely be partnering with companies as we near the end. So I think it'll be, it's really hard to say what effect we'll have directly on pricing because that's really determined by kind of the owners at the very end. But I think at a higher level, the, a lot of the arguments for having high drug prices are the cost it takes to get there. It's very expensive and the companies need to recoup some of those costs. So in the, lo the long-term hope is that if we can really show that this works even for the first disease, other companies will start adopting it, right? Other companies will say, we need to pay more attention to computational approaches to actually predict these drugs in advance. And across the field, adoption of computational biology will then eventually drive, drive down prices. Um, so I think focusing on how can we reduce costs um, and increase efficiency is really a key point in the pricing discussion. Are the drugs that you discover um, drugs that are being repurposed from like that already exist? Are they like new compounds altogether? Are they like gene editing of like CRISPR-Cas or? Yeah, yeah, great question. So the question was, are the drugs that we're discovering, are they repurposed? So they're t taking an old drug for new disease. Are they new drugs or are they gene therapies? Um, so the drugs we're developing internally are actually new drugs. So we have a whole medicinal chemistry team that takes drugs and actually tweaks the structures to make them work even better and to remove the toxicities. And we also have some uh, gene therapy in-house. So we actually take, we can take a gene, we can package it into a virus and then inject it into uh, mice that have the disease. And this quickly knocks down the gene and it's actually a therapy that's currently uh, being tested in the clinic as well. Yes. So the question was about funding and if we partnered with a uh, university versus uh, gotten private funding and why did we choose that route? Um, so we have raised um, to date 36 million from venture capital um, since we started in 2015. Uh, we also partner with universities, so uh, those two paths aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but uh, we just we felt that private funding would allow us to grow as quickly as possible, and I really do think it's a field that's going to grow rapidly in the next few years, so we really want to be first movers on that. <laughs> Uh, firstly, thanks very much for your talk. And my question has to do with, so you started coming up with the idea while you were uh, researching grad students. So I'm curious, how exactly does that work when you're able to walk away with what you are working on while supported in an academic environment in order to pursue it on your own? So the question was, uh, so I was, uh, I found, uh, founded the company while I was with university and how it, walks, how it works that I could kind of um, leave the university and work on it on my own. Um, so the way we started was a bit different in that um, the company as it is now is not actually working on any of the, in terms of the drugs and IP itself, is not the same as what I did at UCLA. Um, at UCLA during my grad school is really kind of learning about the concepts of neuroscience and systems biology. And that's where I really kind of opened my eyes to 
you know, the concept of taking a network could be used in drug discovery. Uh, when we left UCLA, uh, we actually ended up recoding everything entirely from scratch um, and working entirely new diseases. Um, so that allowed us to have a, a pretty kind of clean separation. Um, back there. Yeah, so the question was when I first started out, Y Combinator was a relatively <laughs> low amount of funding compared to what we have now. How did we set the milestones in the early days? Uh, so it's kind of funny, and when you go into Y Combinator, you meet in these groups and you oh, they tell you to set metrics every week. And so every week we were going in, other people were like, oh, we have like this 30%, 30% week over week user growth. And our metric initially was number of drugs discovered, which was always zero. <laughs> so it's always like, yeah, zero drugs discovered this week, same last week and same next week. Um, and actually that was a really... I feel like a key lesson for me to understand that actually metrics for all companies are not the same and when to kind of like adopt advice and when to uh, ignore it or when to adopt a different form of advice. And so for us, the metrics were always around technical risk. Um, so I think obviously if you can create a drug that works, every pharma company will want it and every patient will want it. The kind of question is how do you actually create a case that your technology works. So a lot of our early milestones were technical. It was showing, okay, we made this prediction. Can we put it in some cells and show that it actually works? Which actually in and of itself is a big step because, because of the silos, computational teams kind of infrequently actually test their predictions. And then next was, can, if we put it into a living animal, could we actually see an effect? And then could we actually make a drug that was safe and non-toxic? So a lot of our milestones are very much um, scientific-based. And then another big one was the team. Can we actually recruit a team that really bought into the idea enough to join? And that's actually a big de-risking factor for people because no one knows the technology more, like engineers and scientists. So if you have really high-quality scientists that are coming into your company that are all in, that's a really also a really positive signal for other folks as well. Uh, back there in the blue. Your, your patient library of data is a big competitive advantage for you. And I'm assuming that those original like tissue donations came from patients and their families, and you're using it as like a forefront competitive advantage. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you talk with patients and their families or your nonprofit partners about that data and what it means for you as a company to own that database? Yeah, so the question was, it seems like our patient database is a big advantage. Um, and so when patients initially donate the tissue, how do we interact with these universities as a for-profit company with the universities that are initially nonprofit? Um, so I think the first thing that makes it easier for us is that we're not selling the data. Um, so we're not actually directly profiting off of that data. Um, most of the patients, when they consent, actually consent um, to it being used in more widely by the public. So usually in our collaborations or with the universities and brain banks, they don't really exclude for-profit companies from using it. Um, but we're also at the same time, we're not selling the data. So in a lot of sense, we are actually pretty early. We are a research company. We're doing fundamental research 
to see if we can learn anything about how the disease works. And then we start designing drugs if we do find something, um, a new discovery about the disease. We also publish it too. So for example, we published a manuscript um, in Nature Medicine last February showing a new mechanism um, of ALS with some collaborators at University of Southern California. So in that case, it actually did lead to a new discovery that benefited the field. And that's kind of our perspective that whenever possible, we want to release data information that benefits um, the and moves the field forward. Last question. So, so I'd like to touch upon network building, so the last element which you mentioned. I understood from your talk that having a personal and professional network around you helps you when you're making those difficult decisions. And I would also assume that being a part of my combinator helped you to build that network. Now my question is, what sort of advice could you give to individuals who don't have that sort of an incubator experience uh, about them? So the question was, um, at the end of the presentation, I talked about how important it was to have a network. And for me, Y Combinator was an important source um, of people in the network. For those that aren't doing YC, um, is there any advice I can give uh, for building that network? Um, so I would, I would always think about this kind of like how I think about many other problems in startup, which is first, uh, I think, identifying what are kind of high density sources for finding other founders. Um, so oftentimes, if you go to, like, Incub YC actually holds uh, public events. Um, the Female Founders Conference is an example. Um, I would focus on what are kind of a list of events where founders will almost certainly be found. I think venture, venture capital firms, if you have connections there, also will be high-density sources. Or even just cold emailing, honestly, I know <laughs> sounds like so, like, some people have aversions to it, but you'll be surprised. Like, I get cold emails all the time from other founders, and I actually view it as my responsibility to help them because I got helped out so much when I was a founder by other founders that did not know me. Actually, yeah, when I was applying to YC, I just would randomly email YC founders on Facebook that I didn't know for help and advice, and those people actually ended up becoming investors, advisors eventually. So I think um, founders will... Um, are uh, definitely open, I think more open than most to helping out other people at the beginning because oftentimes they're helped out so much themselves. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production supported by the venture capital firm DFJ. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu. <laughs>